Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we rejoice in your grace so overflowing and evident in our lives, even as we consider the safe trip that you gave each one who is fellowshipping here with us this morning. Father, we thank you also for the overflowing grace and to infinitely greater measure that you've shown us through your word, delivering to us in tangible, written form, and so many pages. Lord, the answers to life's ultimate questions. And also, Lord Jesus, the corrective standards of truth and righteousness by which man is judged a sinner. And Lord, the way of salvation by which man finds his hope in Jesus Christ, his Lord. Father, as we've read the words in the New Testament, in the Gospels, which declare where a treasure is, there our heart will be also. We pray that this song would be our prayer, that we would find our treasure in Jesus Christ, and that there our heart would be satisfied, and there that in and through our heart and life you would be glorified. And now, Lord, as we prepare to listen, both to an example of your word applied in the heart of a believer, And the testimony from your scriptures themselves. I pray that your spirit would use these means to draw us into fellowship closer with our beloved. And to renew, Lord, and strengthen our resolve. If our life is firmly planted on our rock, Jesus Christ. And if he is our ultimate treasure, then nothing can by any means stand in the way of us, Lord, giving glory to your name and advancing your kingdom for your name's sake. And it's in your name, dear Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a privilege to join together around the Holy Scriptures today and also an additional privilege to hear a testimony. And uh, so Kayla DiGiovanni is with us today and is prepared to share a testimony of Christ's work in her. So Kayla, at this time, if you want to come up and give you this amplification device. Good morning. Well, I have to admit, I did not volunteer for this. <laughs> it took a few months of Tim wearing me down for me to finally feel convicted enough and realize that I don't have a good enough answer to say no. So here I am, shaking like a leaf, but I'm here. <laughs> um, I just wanted to start with one of my favorite poems, and it kind of goes along with the theme of my testimony. So it's from William Cooper. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures, treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour, The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And I'm not a public speaker, but I do like writing, so bear with me as I read. When the idea was presented to me to write out my testimony, I struggled in my mind for weeks with the thoughts of trying to put it into words. Many testimonies I've heard from fellow believers 
and previous months tell the ups and downs of cancer, mental illness, marital strife, adoption, and even recovering from a gunshot wound. I have been so encouraged by these amazing stories and at times have thought that my story, one that tells of a broken home and a broken heart, was not worth telling. God has reminded me that all of our testimonies should go forth for his glory and that he works through all things big and small. As I sit here trying to figure out what to say, I'm remembering that initial joy of salvation that is so sweet. Every moment of my life has been a part of the Lord's work in me and his providential plan. All the hard circumstances, the trials, the suffering, along with the good things. Looking back, I am absolutely astonished by his grace. He deserves the glory for the person I am today. Every success and accomplishment was because he gave me life. He saved me from a path that was leading me straight to destruction, an eternity of suffering and torment that my sinful and hardened heart deserved. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This verse is forever written on my heart because it is one of the first verses he used to open my eyes to his truth. He showed me that my works apart from him were filthy rags and there was nothing I could do to save myself. As difficult as it may be to put this experience onto paper, I know it is something he has called me to do. Because so many of my issues were rooted in the parenting I received, I will begin with the story of my parents. They were young and in love, and decided to get married for the same reasons most people do. Emotions drove them into a relationship, which changed from day to day and will never stand up to the test that life bring. First, they brought my brother into the world, and four years later, I came. My father abused drugs and alcohol in an attempt to numb his mental anguish of depression and anxiety, and my mother was not faithful to him. The earliest memories of my childhood were falling asleep listening to my parents arguing in the next room. Although I did not learn of my parents' issues until I was much older, I always knew something was wrong. My parents tried to protect us any way they knew how, but their best attempts to hide the truth were not enough. When I was around four, my mom pulled me into her arms crying and told me that her and my dad were not going to be together any longer. I was so confused and scared, I had no source of comfort or security. My mom was leaving my dad, and she received custody of my brother and I. The details of all the changes that followed are not clear to me, but I remember the day that my dad showed up and said he was taking us home with him. As soon as my mom felt overwhelmed, she decided to give us up to my dad. We moved into a house in Moorhead, and eventually my dad got remarried and I had a little stepbrother. This new family was more functional than the last, but that began to decay as well. Growing up, we frequently visited my dad's parents at their farm in Pine River. My grandma was a very strong woman, but my grandpa was driven by his legalistic religion and extreme work ethic. He was diagnosed in his 50s with Parkinson's disease and slowly began needing more and more care from my grandma. When the farming could no longer provide for them, my grandma began working more shifts at a nursing home along with keeping up with the farm and caring for my grandpa. Soon she became very overwhelmed and my dad decided to move home to help out. We packed everything up and moved to the farm, which was three hours away from my mother and the life that I knew. I was in third grade then, and at this point, very insecure and closed off. My dad was soon facing his second divorce, and my brother ended up spending most of his childhood after the move with my mom or friends. I ended up feeling like an only child and was living with my dad, who emotionally was a million miles away. I see now that he made so many sacrifices for me, but I never felt truly connected to him. 
He had been abstinent from drugs and alcohol for several years by now and was trying to work through his own issues. At some point, during a visit before we moved to the farm, I had met the neighbor kids and would play with them when I was visiting. Once I moved, I spent most of the days roaming around the farm and claiming the animals as my only friends in the world. Soon I decided to see if the neighbor girl wanted to hang out with me. We quickly, quickly became friends again and we'd see each other mostly every day. I loved their family. They made me feel like I belonged somewhere and I had so much fun with them. I eventually made some friends at school, but I mainly clung to the neighbor girl of my life on the farm. The summer before sixth grade, my mom showed up to be with us again. I'm guessing it was out of guilt and was some attempt to make up for what she had done. I let her creep back into my heart, only to be set up for another disappointment. She was so good at pretending to be happy, but it soon wore her out and she left without saying goodbye to me the night before school started. I think that was the point when my heart officially froze over. I trusted no one and had no intention on letting anyone close enough to hurt me again. Of course, my dad was also crushed. There were points when he tried to reach out to me, but by that time it was too late. He got really involved with AA and was frequently attending meetings and groups. Eventually, he found a new girlfriend and she moved into our house with her two children. This new living situation was not working for any of us and I ended up moving in with my grandparents next door. I see this now as one of the best things that could have happened to me since my dad was struggling and my mom wasn't there. My grandma was very strong in her faith and she was the only rock in my life. I know she tried to reach me and share her faith with me, but I was lost. She spent time with me teaching me about gardening, cooking, baking, and other household chores. These are all memories that I still cherish and things that I love doing to this day. My aunt and uncle, who are also my godparents, would occasionally visit from the cities with their kids. Their only daughter, who was three months younger than me, Rachel, was always fun to be around. When they were visiting, I liked to pretend like I was a part of their family because they seemed so normal. It wasn't that I didn't love my own family, but it seemed like Rachel's life was so much easier. When I was feeling alone, I would call Rachel and we would talk for hours about how we were going to convince her parents to move up north so we could be together. Some of my best childhood memories were from these times when for a moment I felt like I might belong somewhere. Another dream I had was to be homeschooled like my neighbors. I hated my school and never wanted to be there. Needless to say, my dad wasn't up for the challenge. Now and then my neighbor friend would take me to Emily with her, which is where her family went to church and had school a couple days a week. This was also something I wished I could be a part of in order to escape from my life. When I was in junior high, my neighbor friend's older siblings had started getting into trouble. They began to influence her and I, and we would scheme about sneaking out with them. It never really worked out, but they would occasionally let us go into the woods to try cigarettes. I never really enjoyed this, but my friend acted so cool about it. For a while, I tagged along with her and tried to fit in with this phase she was in, but pretty soon I felt left out and unwelcome. I started hanging out with her less and began hanging out with my friends from school more. By this time, my dad's girlfriend had left and I decided to move back in with him. He was deep into the psychology world and had this new age way of parenting that involved letting me do whatever I wanted in order to learn from my mistakes. I rarely had curfews or boundaries. Looking back now, I'm not really sure if this is truly what he thought was best or if he didn't have the strength to deal with a troubled teenager. Public school was a harsh world, and I felt like I was constantly struggling to fit in with the right crowd. The girls my age were into boys, and some of them already had boyfriends in junior high. I caught on to their ways and started seeking attention from guys. 
I was pretty shy at this age, but I was always hoping someone was noticing me. Most of my friends' parents had money, unlike mine, and were able to keep up with the latest trends and material things. I was so desperate to be like them that I decided to get a job at 14. I got hired at the local grocery store and my dad agreed to help with rides. As soon as the money came, I became obsessed with perfecting myself. I spent entire paychecks on my appearance in any way I knew how. I would get a rush when I walked down the halls at school hoping that I was being noticed. I went from liking guy to guy, and because I never opened up enough to let any of them in, nothing ever lasted long. I attended every pep rally, sports event, and school dance. Feeling accepted by my peers was the first thing in my life that I felt like I had control over. During my sophomore year, when my, when my friends started driving, the partying started. My friends started drinking on the weekends and hiding things from their parents. Until that point, I never thought I would try drugs or alcohol because I didn't want to repeat my parents' mistakes in that way. I did attend some parties and gave drinking a few tries to keep up with my social status, but I quickly started to lose interest. Some of my friends started trying drugs, but I was so haunted by the fear of repeating my dad's mistakes that I never tried anything. I grew tired of this scene and, and being at school in general. The attention-seeking behaviors were no longer boosting my depleted self-worth, and I became very unhappy. Right when I was feeling more lost than ever, the neighbor girl called. She said she wanted to live a life that was glorifying to God and would no longer be doing those things I had mentioned previously. I was a little surprised, but happy to hear from her. It wasn't necessarily that I had that same conviction, but I felt like maybe I could fit in with her again since things weren't going well at school. Growing up, I would go with my grandma to the neighborhood Lutheran church, but it never meant anything to me. I didn't think I was against God and would say that I was a believer, but I certainly didn't know what it meant to know him. We started hanging out more, but it just wasn't like it used to be. That summer, I met some friends in Brainerd when I was working in town, but hanging out with them wasn't the answer I was looking for either. My mom would call, call now and then, but I, had grown so but I had grown so far away from her over the years. She did not feel like a mother to me, only someone who checked in every once in a while. I wanted to get away from my life and asked if I could stay with her for a while. She was living in Oklahoma with her new husband and we decided to give it a try. I lived there for a couple months and even started my junior year of high school there. Early that fall, my dad called and said that my grandpa wasn't doing very well and I should come home to say goodbye to him. I packed a bag and left the next day. I spent time with my grandpa and he passed away a few days after I arrived. After the funeral, I called my mom to figure out arrangements to come back and she told me that they felt it was too much of a change for them and I couldn't return. I had made friends there and even started a job that I enjoyed. I was so mad at her, I couldn't believe she had burned me again. In a sense, I was relieved because it felt good to be home, but painful to feel abandoned once again by her. I transferred back to my high school and finished the semester, but I felt like I was invisible. I didn't care about anyone there or what they thought about me anymore. I told my dad I wanted to switch schools and I begged and pleaded until finally he went with me to the counselor's office to discuss my options. I ended up enrolling in the PSEO program where I could take college courses that would also apply towards fulfilling my high school diploma. I lost contact with my high school friends and I started hanging out with a neighbor girl again, which is when I began going to youth group with her and Emily. It was so intimidating to me. Everyone there was different than my friends from school. 
Even though I was scared, I kept coming. I dated a few guys that I met at school, but my neighbor friend usually convinced me to dump them. <laughs> One guy in Emily, Jake, caught my interest right away, but none of my old tricks worked on him. He totally ignored me. <laughs> the more I hung around, the more I liked him. The more I liked him, the more he blew me off. I gave up on other guys and thought he was the one for me. When I was 17, I experienced a very memorable youth group. My youth pastor and his my youth pastor came in and told us that he was leaving with his family for Kansas City for a while. He said he had important things to tell us and told us not to even sit next to anyone because he wanted us to hear every word. He preached a message to us that was so extreme I hardly took a breath. It was about suffering and pain. He talked about God being sovereign over it all. He preached the gospel in a way I had never heard it. Suddenly my past was flashing before my eyes and I felt like a load was lifted off my heart. I felt like scales were being peeled off my eyes and I was seen clearly for the first time. My life finally made sense for a minute and I realized that maybe all the horrible things had a purpose after all. I snuck out and drove off, but I was crying so hard that I couldn't see straight. I pulled off into a parking lot and called my youth pastor and his wife. They were so loving and open to me, I felt like they really cared. However, the next day they left as planned and the relationship I had started with them was put on hold. I'm not sure what happened to me that night. I used to think it was the night I got saved, but looking back now, I know my heart was still hard. I wanted to learn and change, but it wasn't working out how I wanted. The emotions I felt that night faded away, but I kept coming around. I started acting like the others and thought I was a Christian. Fall came and it was my senior year. I started up classes again at the college and my neighbor friend did too. We would carpool and hang out all the time. I had totally cut off my old high school friends and was trying to work my way into this new group. Jake, the guy I mentioned earlier, hung out at my neighbor's house a lot because he was friends with her brother. Before I knew it, we were dating. My friend was not supportive. She kept telling me it was wrong and that neither of us were ready for a relationship. I didn't understand, and I had never felt this way about someone before. I brushed off her advice, and pretty soon I was infatuated with him. We hung out against our friend's advice, and pretty soon we were inseparable. My youth pastor and his wife returned, and they were not supportive of our relationship either. At this point, we were already in total bondage to sin mentally, physically, and emotionally. They tried giving us advice, but we did our own thing. I graduated high school that spring and didn't care about my future because I was so enthralled in my relationship. However, things started getting rocky. We started arguing about our relationship constantly. We both felt convicted and wanted things to change, so we started going to our youth pastor and his wife for help. Jake took their advice and mustered up the strength to break up with me. As you can imagine, I was crushed. I wanted to get away, so I started looking into my options. My cousin Rachel had moved up after graduation to stay with our grandma and was also really close friends with a neighbor girl. I had treated them both so poorly, ditching them and lying to them in an attempt to try and hide my sin that was so obvious to them anyway. I felt rejected by them, but I didn't blame them. This misery was my fault and I knew it. I had previously showed interest in the army and decided to leave that August for basic training. It was an easy escape and it sounded like a fun adventure. The time came to leave and I felt like I had a vice around my heart. I told Jake I wanted to stay and be with him, but he said that even if I wasn't leaving, we still couldn't be together, so I left. Thinking back now, the eight months I was gone is such a distant memory. 
I was in a total daze trying to find myself. When I returned home, Jake and I slowly slumped back into our old relationship. We thought we were ready for, we thought we were ready after being apart so long. We dated throughout that winter, but became less and less satisfied with our relationship. I started feeling alone and depressed because the previous infatuation with him that had temporarily filled my heart was fading. I became an emotional wreck. It wasn't his fault. It was my own sin nature attempting to fill a void with a guy rather than crying out to God. I grew closer to our youth pastor's wife through this time. She was so amazing, the most beautiful person inside and out that I had ever met. I trusted her and opened up to her more than anyone else in my life. I wanted to be like her, but I was stuck in a rut I couldn't pull myself out of. Eventually, Jake's conscience caught up to him, and he broke up with me once again. I was desperate to be freed from this life I was living. My youth pastor and his wife took me under their wing and started teaching me things. I started to feel happier and had a desire for a better life. A friend from church told me about YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and said that she did a volunteer program for them in Hawaii. I started looking into it and thought that time away would be good for me. I was there for one, more, one month and did more soul searching than I had ever done in my life. I know now that God was preparing me for the painful but life-changing summer ahead. <laughs> Meanwhile, back home, our youth group slash Bible study that had grown into a potential church, which is now Providence, had started renting a building to have Sunday evening services in. They had be been meeting at a member's house and decided to take it to the next level. I came home from Hawaii on a spiritual high, ready to get involved with our new church. I thought I was ready for a relationship once again and started talking to my old flame, Jake. <laughs> Soon after, the Lord surfaced the sin in both of our lives and ripped us apart. I was broken and hurting when another trial was right around the corner. My neighbor friend had gotten engaged before I left for Hawaii to someone she had met only a couple months previously. I was supposed to be in her wedding and we had just picked out our bridesmaid dresses together. She had recently moved to the cities for a new job, but we were still close friends. Suddenly, I couldn't get a hold of her. She had changed her number and canceled her email account. When the sin in her life that drove her away became public, I went into a total, total depression. I felt like I had no one, and my heart that I thought was finally healing was broken. My new mentors, my youth pastor and his wife, had their own issues, which led them to move away as well. I lost them, Jake, and my lifelong neighbor friend all within two weeks. All the relationships that I had been trying to use as a crutch had crumbled from under me. I had been living with Rachel since I returned from the army, but our fr friendship wasn't very close anymore and she was dealing with stuff in her own life then. I was in so much emotional pain that I felt physically sick all over. I had very minimal contact with my family and now the closest people in my life were gone as well. For weeks, I stayed in my bedroom and felt sorry for myself. I would close my blinds and just sink under my covers to cry. I felt so broken and worthless, like I was in a total darkness, but I couldn't see any light to find my way out. None of my attempts to fix myself had worked, and I felt defeated. Looking back now, I see an analogy that gives a visual of my life up to this point. Growing up, one of the special things my dad often did was take me fishing. One winter as a child when he took me ice fishing, I saw that he had put some large nails into his coat pocket. I asked what they were for, and he said that it was in case he fell through the ice 
so that he could use them to get a grip on the edge of the ice to pull himself out. In this state of brokenness, I envisioned myself as a fisherman that had fallen through the ice. I spent my whole life fighting to hold on to that slippery edge of ice to pull myself from the numbing and ice cold water below. I held on so tightly, always trying to get a grip on things and save myself from my sin, my life and my circumstances I was dealt. There were times when I would find some strength to pull myself a little further out of the miserably cold water, such as leaving for a trip, changing schools, clinging to the excitement of a new friendship, perfecting my appearance, or the high of an emotional connection with a boyfriend. <laughs> However, those times when I felt a little relief never lasted long before I sunk back down. Now this icy ledge was cracking apart outside of my control, and I was too tired to keep clawing and fighting to find somewhere new to dig in. I finally just let go and sunk into the dark water, and I had nothing left within reach to grasp. Helpless and hopeless, I laid there drowning in all the baggage from my life. I had finally reached an all-time low and hit rock bottom. This is when I finally started to feel God's warmth and see the light of his truth that he had been planting in me throughout the past few years. He reached in to pull me out of this watery grave and left all my baggage behind me to be washed away according to his perfect will and purposes rather than my own. For Romans 9:16 says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Shortly after I was saved, God opened doors to a new friendship in my life. Not a friend that I could grasp onto in an attempt to feel accepted or hold as one of my emotional hostages, but one that truly cared about what was at stake for me eternally. This new friend, Nikki, would call to check up on me knowing that I was hurting from everything that had happened the weeks before. Even though I was hard to reach, she didn't give up on me. We became accountability partners and would meet frequently to talk things over and pray together. Nikki and her husband, Ken, who was our new pastor, knew what I was going through and supported me. That summer was the worst, hardest, most miserable time of my life. But looking back, it was really the best time because that was when I truly met the Lord. He used all the broken relationships and difficult circumstances in my life to finally leave me totally broken to the point of being desperate for him and freed me from my sin and hardness. Although I was still working through the painful events from the summer, I drew close to the Lord and felt more comfort and peace than ever before. I wanted to start living for him and was seeking guidance for what to do next. With a new take on life, I again enrolled in college. God used this time to break down my pride and I slowly learned to rely on him. The school year brought many challenges for me. I was keeping up with classes while working through my life and learning to overcome my past. Rachel had gone through similar trials and had decided to go to school as well. Our relationship was restored and we grew closer. That spring, with God's grace on my life, I had completed the, re the requirements to pursue a nursing career and I knew it was what he was calling me to do. I didn't know where this education would lead me, but it seemed right at the time. The season of my life was really great for me. I was truly enjoying my new walk with the Lord and developing true friendships with many of you that are listening to my testimony today. It has been just over six years now since the Lord pulled me out of that darkness during that painful but glorious summer, and I'm sitting here thinking over the work he has done in my life. It is not measurable. There is not enough time in a day to count all the blessings in my life. The things from my past have been washed away, and when I dig for these memories to write them down, I feel like I'm talking about a different person. I am no longer haunted with shame and doubt, but I feel free. He is still teaching me so much, 
I am constantly learning about his attributes and seeing more of the fruit in my spirit, fruit of the spirit in my life through his grace. Over the years, I wished I could change things so many times, but if it were up to me, I wouldn't be who or where I am today. I don't feel any pain from the trials I endured growing up because I now have an eternal father who will never forsake me. A lot has happened during my faith walk since that time. The infamous boy in the story, Jake, <laughs> went through many of his own trials during that season that we spent apart. God surfaced and rooted out sin in his life that at times is very painful for me to see and understand, but God used those trials to show me that I had to let him and our relationship go. In my heart, I always felt a deep love and connection to him, but I can honestly say that I came to a place where I didn't think we would end up together. After all the mistakes we had made, it seemed impossible. I was seeing that God used the trial of our teenage romance in both of our relationships with him, and it was monumental in breaking us both to the point of crying out to him. Separately, he worked in both of our lives through this. During the years following that hard time, my cousin Rachel and I were roommates and the best of friends. We had every class together in the nursing program and even worked at the same waitressing job. I think this close friendship was really healing for me. We were very open and trusting with each other. It has been one of the most sharpening and fun relationships of my life, and I'm so thankful for her in the years that we spent together. Of course, we are still friends now, and it has been awesome sharing the joys that marriage and children have brought us. She has an amazing testimony as well, which I think you'll hear next month. <laughs> for many years, I longed for answers and closure from my relationship with a neighbor girl in my story. I thought that maybe since we were both in a better place in our lives, we could be friends again. However, the more time that passed without hearing from her, the more I realized that maybe God's purpose of being her neighbor and friend was not to have this wonderful lifelong friendship with her that I had imagined. It was part of God's plan to put together the life that I now know and love. Because he placed me next door to her, I met so many people that now make up my church body and family, including my husband. I do still cherish the memories and all the laughs we had together as kids. I'm so thankful that her family was such a blessing to me when things were difficult with mine. A few years back, I did see her at a friend's wedding. We didn't speak of the past, but she did hug me, and that long embrace was more powerful than any words could have been at the time. God gave me the final closure on that phase of my life that I had been longing for. The relationship in my life that has played the biggest role in showing me the power of God's grace and mercy has been the one that has blossomed into my marriage. Before I knew it, after a long season of being separated from Jake, and both of us had experienced freedom and healing in our lives separately, he came to me and said that the Lord was leading him back to me. With the blessing of Ken and Nikki, our accountability and covering at the time, he pursued a relationship with me. Things were 100% different with Christ as the center, rather than our fleeting emotions like our old relationship. We grew together in a way we never thought possible or had ever experienced. It was a wonderfully romantic season in my life that I will always cherish. It was amazing to see how a relationship that respected godly boundaries was much more free than one that was bound up in sin. The spring of 2010 came, and many changes were coming my way. I was graduating from college and taking my RN boards, starting a new and exciting job, and I had fulfilled my six-year commitment with the Army Reserves. On what I thought was a typical Tuesday evening after nursing clinicals, 
Jake brought me on a blindfolded, bumpy truck ride through the woods to a romantic hilltop picnic overlooking a scenic river. He asked me to be his wife, and of course I gladly accepted. You may be wondering why I am sharing so much about my relationship with Jake as a part of my personal testimony, but it is because God used it so much in my walk with him. He showed me that only his power and truths could turn such a worldly relationship into one that so beautifully reflected the relationship of Christ and the church. To God be the glory for that miracle. We never could have broken free from the bondage we were in without God's divine intervention in both of our lives. In December 2010, September of 2010, seven years after I had first laid eyes on him, I finally married the boy in my story. This marriage covenant between us has been such a strengthening season of my life as it deepened my experience and understanding of Christ's love for his bride. As it is so beautifully written in Songs of Solomon, I have found the one whom my soul loves. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Although there have been struggles as with every couple, God's blessing has been so heavy and rich in our marriage. Although we were loosely hoping to wait a few months to get pregnant, we found out a few weeks after our honeymoon that we had conceived our first child. Our sweet baby girl, Emmeline June, who was named after my grandmother as a tribute to her work in my life, blessed us with her presence nine months into our marriage. This came with its own set of tests and trials as newlyweds, but once again, God worked his sovereign hand in our lives and knew exactly the daughter we were meant to have. If we would have had that few months together that we had wanted, Emmeline wouldn't be Emmeline. Thank you, Lord, for your plans that are so much greater than mine. When she was 10 months old, yet again before I thought I was ready, we were blessed with another pregnancy. My womb is open to the Lord's will, but I have to continually lay it down to him. Our precious baby boy, Ephraim Seth, has been nothing but pure joy to us with his happy personality and constant smiles and laughter. God has been faithfully working in my heart to teach me that the fruit of my womb is a reward and never a burden. My children are a fruit of his work in my life and his blessing on our marriage. During this time, he also opened doors for us to buy property from a fellow Christian via contract for deed. We poured our savings and pretty much everything we had into building a home, which at many times seemed hopeless. Throughout the whole experience, God was continually providing for us in ways we never expected and taught us so many lessons along the way. Several friends and family donated their time and talents, which was a total answer to prayer, and we are so grateful. God also provided materials for us many times when we were out of money and wondering what to do next. Free lumber from a relative that lost his business, beams for our ceiling from my dad, insulation that Jake salvaged from a job, reclaimed brick from a friend, countless logs from our property and friends' tree jobs that our neighbor milled into beams and lumber, and more recently, God provided a used wood stove to us, identical to one that we had picked out in the store for exactly the amount of cash that we had set aside for it. These are just a few examples of ways that God put everything together and provided a home for our family. Another display of God's work recently has been in my relationships with my parents. My dad and I see differently in many areas, but we are getting closer to a point where we can have a relationship despite that. My mom has also moved back to the area to be a part of our lives, which has provided much needed time and opportunity for reconciliation as well. The most recent trial in our life was about two months ago when our eight-month-old son climbed up and leaned on the glass of our roaring hot 
wood stove with his left hand. We immediately rushed him to the emergency room where he was treated for severe second and third degree burns covering his hand. This has been one of the most challenging times in my life, especially as a mother. I felt haunted by his screams of pain and the image of seeing him standing at the stove was still burned in my mind. Usually as a mother, when your child has fallen or is crying from being hungry or tired, they are easily nurtured and loved back to their previously happy state. This was different and very painful to hold my child as he screamed in torment for a solid hour before he was medicated and eventually passed out in my arms. Although he was a total trooper and handled it amazingly well, it weighed so heavy on my heart. I fought off feelings of guilt and also fear, knowing that my children's well-being and safety ultimately is not in my control. God has reminded me, through many tears and heartache once again, that he holds the universe in his hands. That includes your life, my life, and the lives of my children. He is healing me from this experience and making me a stronger mother and wife because of it. He is sovereign over all things, and knowing that truth has brought so much peace to me in my life. God is glorified in ways that we don't always understand. Through disappointment, like in my childhood, deep heartache and brokenness through my teenage years, and now through many blessings and evidences of his mercy and grace through my adult years. Most recently, through this trial with Ephraim, he has been glorified through his healing power on our son's hand. After his initial injury, I went through a number of appointments and was told that although his burns were healing without infection, which was an answered prayer, we needed to prepare ourselves for long-term nerve damage and sensory issues, as well as problems with growth from scar tissue down the road. Hearing this news laid heavy on our hearts, and we had to continually surrender it to the Lord along with the emotions that came with it as parents. Four weeks after the initial injury, I took him to see a burn specialist in St. Paul, where I was told that he should have a surgery, he should have had a surgery and skin graft that night. Against all scientific and medical odds, he was healing with little to no nerve damage or scarring, and most likely no long-term damage. The doctor's only explanation was that it was a miracle. God is so good, and he has shown me this through all the trials, suffering, healing, and joy that he has done in my life and those around me. The past few years have truly been a season of blessing and abundance in my life, and my prayer is that with whatever my future holds, he will continually give me the grace to trust in his plans. I will close with a psalm that I will forever hold dear to my heart as it has helped me through many hard times. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and coming in from this time forth forevermore. Thank you. Amen and praise the Lord. Pray with me quickly if you would, if you bow your heads.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we give you praise and honor for the testimony of your goodness, your grace, your miraculous intervention power to heal the soul and the body that we've just heard. Father, our hearts are joyous within us, Lord, as we're reminded that not only is a testimony overflowing from your word, but in our experience of the tender mercies, and as Psalm 31 tells us, the steadfast love of our great God. We thank you for these truths. Now speak to us, Lord, further underscore these things that we've heard, Lord, and add an exclamation point at the end as we open up your scriptures together. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Turn with me to Psalm 31, if you would. The title of this morning's message is The Believer's Last Stand. The Believer's Last Stand. That title, I realize, implies that that's a final place for your hope and assurance to rest before you pass on to eternal life. But not only does Psalm 31 provide the believer's last stand, and we're reminded of the last stand of Jesus Christ in the last moments of his own life, breathing the air that you and I share in his physical body when he said, Father, into your hand I commit my spirit. And thus, having uttered those words, gave up his life and became a ransom for many. Not only can we relate in this moment, to an utter trust in the holy plan of a heavenly Father at the end of our life because of the last stand of Jesus Christ defeating Satan and his minions, sin and death itself. But we can make our stand today. David explains to us in Psalm 31 that he stands on a place of assurance and foundation and immovable security. David explains to us that no matter the hardships of life, ones that maybe you can relate to that we just heard of in this testimony, inner struggles, insecurities, pain, and situations that it's impossible for a mere human to prepare for, or the ultimate pain of uncertainty, knowing, not knowing what might lie beyond death's door, Nothing can prepare us for those save one foundational rock and place for our hope to rest. The believer's only and last stand, his only rock, Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Psalm 31 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ our Lord, even as its messianic prophecy was spoken from his word in verse 5, Into your hands I commit my spirit. To give us a brief context, I and that will hopefully provide some background and undergird this message for this week and perhaps into next, because there's 24 verses here so saturated and rich with meaning that I don't think we'll get to it all today. But to give us a little context, consider as we read this psalm the beauty, imagery, and intimacy that rest on the insight of the Holy Spirit inspiring David to identify and to identify with covenant themes that are central to Scripture and indeed are central to all of history. And there's a special emphasis in this psalm with the name of God that's first used in Deuteronomy in the song and final word of Moses when he declared Almighty God to be the rock. 
the rock in capital letters, the foundation, the resting point, the place on which the believer stands immovable and assured, safe, even as Moses himself experienced in his own testimony, God hiding him in a cleft of the rock on, mount, on that mountain before God revealed to him the fearful, awesome, amazing revelation of his glory. Before God did so, he carved or placed, as it were, Moses in the cleft of the rock. And Moses' last words to the people, as we'll read in due course, were, Do not forget your rock, your foundation, the covenantal basis and bedrock upon which to build a life and a society is the Almighty God in His unchanging, immovable character and His abiding promises and covenant. And so David picks up on this beautiful imagery and powerful uh, in powerful testimony of who God is in Psalm 31, verse 1, as we, re- as we read, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. In these first five verses, which we'll consider in introduction this morning to this psalm, you can see how David identifies and identifies with the covenant themes central to history and to Scripture. There's special emphasis on God, His assurance, and the assurance that He gives us, His people, all of the saints, as David mentions in the closing of his song in verse 23, Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. And then again, these reassuring words in verse 24, Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Giving us the comforting assurance that the security that David felt and declared in verses 1-5 through five was not unique to him, though he indeed was a unique figure in redemptive history. None of us, none of us will share in the opportunity to be a king of God's people. None of us will share in the opportunity to the extent that David was to be a type of Christ. None of us will have the exact same experiences that he did when he experienced the overcoming divine intervention power of Almighty God to slay Goliath, to subdue kings, to conquer nations, and to lead a people with superior administrative skills, millions of people, than any other human king, aside from Jesus Christ himself, that this great nation ever knew. But one thing we can all share with David is this promise. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. 
You are a rock of refuge to me, second half of verse 2. A strong force to save me. The assurance of Jesus Christ ultimately as our rock, refuge, salvation, and foundation is something that David and all of his saints can and do share. The preservation power of Almighty God. The faithfulness that is ultimately the faithfulness of Christ and then manifests in the life of the believer. And the abundant, overflowing grace that we experience in His keeping power every morning the sun dawns on our, on our day and every evening when it sets and we consider His faithfulness for as many hours as He's kept us from the moment we entered this world like Macy this last week to the moment He calls us home in His perfect timing, and we can confess in that last dying gasp, into your hands, I commit my spirit. As assured at the moment of our passing that our life is established on the rock, as we are this morning, I trust as you could relate to Kayla's words, if you are a believer, that because of Jesus Christ, the foundation of your eternal life is secure. This title, The Believer's Last Stand, is derived from the foundational imagery of God as our rock. And it also provides a heading for perhaps seven points, which we won't get to all this morning, of how we can perhaps sort the ideas in this psalm. I'll give them to you in summary, and then we'll expand on them beyond even this week, and I trust, Lord willing, next week's message. But under the believer's last stand, Psalm 31 declares in these first five verses what the believer stands on. And then perhaps in verse 6 through 8, we can understand David's message to say the believer stands against some things. That is to say, Psalm 31 reveals what we stand on, and Psalm 31 reveals what the believer stands against. Uh, Number three, Psalm 31 reveals what the believer stands in spite of. Verses 9 through 13. The forces that would seek to tear us down, dispirit, and destroy are thwarted ultimately when our life is founded on Jesus Christ. Number four, what the believer stands instead of. There are certain things that would like to outclass, outdo the believer And the believer stands in the end instead of these forces that raise himself against the knowledge of the Almighty. Number five, what the believer stands with, or I should say, who the believer stands with. God has not left us as testimony of the believers sitting around you even this morning alone. And number six, the believer stands because. And then number seven, the believer stands for all undergirded by the knowledge of the Almighty God through His keeping power and redemptive plan as our rock and our nation. As these first five verses are unfolded for us, they're so saturated and rich in meaning that I'm reminded that the Bible's vocabulary of redemption is not limited to mere written words. Remember, if you will, the Old Testament context that David was familiar with and the context that no doubt undergirded this psalm and was in his mind as he wrote. David was familiar not just with written words, but also with object lessons 
feasts, examples, testimony, narrative. Indeed, as we consider the vocabulary of the covenant, if you will, God has so condescended to man, that's a theological term for made himself known to those who exist on such a lower plane but has done so graciously. In other words, God is almighty, magnificent, and in a class all to himself. And we understand by the nature of his very existence that his holiness is by definition so far above and over and majestically radiant in the sum of his character that we could never, ever, aside from his condescension, hope to grasp or understand even an iota of who he is or how we can be reconciled to Him. But in spite of His holiness, none of which He ever compromises, God in His amazing grace has condescended. He has spoken to, He has come down to our level and revealed Himself. And even here, as David's writing, before the New Testament is graciously granted, nevertheless, God has spoken in the vast vocabulary of covenant language through His written word, through prophecy, through object lesson, through liturgy, through historical events, through symbolic feasts, through revelatory moments, through allegorical accounts, through figurative offices through representative imagery, through memorials, holidays, altars, ceremonies, narratives, and vows. In all of these ways, and so manifold and glorious and beautiful, God had revealed Himself to His covenant people as their rock. And so as David writes, I imagine these were the thoughts that were overflowing in this psalm of worship. And compressed into this saturated, glorious sum of words, verses 1 through 5, is an inexhaustible well of glory where the confluence of all these ideas come together and overflow in an amazing sense of disclosure. I'll give you a definition of confluence. This idea of confluence is where many streams converge and there's a Combining of the forces, imagine like multiple tributaries joining at the point of confluence into a rushing, mighty river. And this is the way God reveals Himself in redemptive history. There's a stream, a faint hint that, but nevertheless a ray of hope to Adam and Eve that one day a son will be born to a woman who would crush the serpent's head. A tiny trickle of revelation. That stream is joined by another as God makes the first sacrifice of animals and symbolically covers the nakedness of His people. Speaking in another way, in another dimension of His atoning power to reconcile sinful man to holy God. And then we see as the revelation continues to unfold and we go from milestone to mile marker to memorial service to covenant to vow, we see Abraham receiving the covenant. We see his graciousness to Noah, preserving him through the flood, the bow in the sky, the promise that there still is hope on the horizon, though only eight, only eight have been spared. And there is a point 
where all of these trickles, all of these streams of God's revelation converge. And where do they ultimately converge? But the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here and only here can we understand that God's justice is satisfied and thus His holiness preserved. And God's steadfast love that David so clung to was also evident in Him supplying the one and perfect Lamb, the once for all sacrifice. And here at this moment of redemption, the confluence, that is the coming together of all the streams of God's redemptive revelation is manifest in the flood of glory that is our Lord Jesus Christ. That cleansing flood, that joyful well, that fount of glory, that beautiful picture of our rock and our refuge. Now that's the ultimate point in redemptive history of confluence of the ways that God has spoken, revealed and coming together in Christ. But notice in just these five verses how these ways that God has spoken in the past also come together at this moment in David's psalm. Reading again verse 1, And you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me steadily, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, and you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. This is where the believer stands. David has identified his last stand, his only stand, his foundation, and what ultimately the believer stands on. I would like to draw your attention to a couple of other Old Testament passages that no doubt fueled and inspired these words. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32 if you would. As I mentioned before, Put yourself, if you would, in your imagination, your mind's eye, in Moses' shoes. Moses had had the opportunity, more so than any human being that preceded him, of the most direct communication with God that anyone had ever experienced. So much so that the evidence of that interaction shone with a lingering glory on his face that other people could not stand to see, and thus a veil was placed over his head. Yet this man himself was no savior. Though he was privy to this kind of revelation, he himself could not stand up under the weight of leading these people in righteousness. And he himself was indeed a sinner and showed as much at a different rock. But nevertheless, even though the worst of Moses' memories, perhaps, as God pronounced that he would never enter the promised land because of the way he treated the rock the second time, even with that memory no doubt seared into his conscience, as Moses writes his final words, you might think, what is the most important theme that he would pass along to God's people? And here we find the answer in the Song of Moses a psalm, if you will, of his own writing in Deuteronomy 32.3, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness 
to our God. Verse 4, the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. Verse 15, he goes on to say in the second half of that verse, Then he forsook God, speaking of those who had turned their back on him, who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Again, rock is used as a reference, disclosing something of the character of the Almighty. In verse 18, you were mindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot, unmindful of the rock that bore you, you forgot the God who gave you birth. He goes on to refer to the Lord in these terms again in verse 30. How could one have chased a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For the rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. He continues until the end of his speaking. He came and recited these words, verse 44. All the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And notice in the note of timing in verse 48, that very day the Lord took Moses, I'm sorry, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession, and die on the, mount, on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people. As Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel for you shall see the land before you but you shall not go there into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel. The implications of this moment at the end of this former prophet, this former leader of God's people, at the end of his life are staggering. He pronounces that the rock that he disrespected when he struck it in the wilderness was representative of the foundational, of the foundational security of this entire people. He proclaimed that this God who had been the stabilizing force and the immovable, immortal, invisible, omniscient one among them, yet had revealed himself graciously in cloud and fire, was the only hope for the future of this people. He said that these words that he delivered were no empty word for them, but they were their very life. He said that right before he laid his own life down, as it were, or obediently followed God's command to go up to the mountain and to die. It was a command for him to go to the place of reckoning in his life, in this life, for his sins. 
But there was a promise even there. That is, there was a rock in Moses that he had faith in that was stronger than his own sin. And though he would never enter the promised land in this life, nevertheless it was promised to him that he would be gathered to his people. The imagery here is so stark and so powerful and it reminds us that stronger than our weakness and stronger than the forces of sin and everything else is an undergirding foundation within the heart of a believer that will ultimately give them the place of their last stand, their rock, Jesus Christ. Identity with this sovereign, immovable force is absolutely necessary for the believer to stay secure, encouraged, and thriving in his walk. Though he be fraught with weakness and sin, yet can he say, the Lord is my strength forever. Though he be failing, and though his past be sordid with areas of apostasy, and horrific drifting from the Lord, his anchor. Nevertheless, he can have that assurance in the final day. Father, into thy hand I commit my spirit. The Lord was Moses' rock. In Exodus 17, 6, the rock was originally struck upon God's command, thus symbolizing that judgment was taken by God himself in substitution for the people. And from that rock, the water flowed and was the life-giving force to, his, to the people of God at that time. In Numbers 20, verse 13, it's the record of Moses' great sin, where he unjustly, recklessly, and sinfully struck the rod again. And thus, he was sinfully forgetting that there is but one sacrifice, sufficient sacrifice, made for the people. We were reminded that Jesus Christ bore our sins upon his back and he was died and he was struck once and for all for his own. And finally, it's time for Moses' own judgment in this life, but he still hangs on to the knowledge of God as his rock. And there's a covenant lineage then that Moses leaves in his written record that God had graciously revealed to him. The books of the law are passed along, and they fall into the hands eventually of one David, who is called to be a similar influence on the people of God, to be in himself a testimony of something of who God is to his people. But we know David as a sinner as well. Both Moses and David's record of failing is illustrated for us to show that no man is a rock. Only the Lord is our rock, and only He is our fortress. These days, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, if only the Savior, politically, economically, or so on, could come. We need somebody who can sort out this mess. We live in a land that is incurring the judgment of waywardness and faithlessness. We're reaping upon our head the principal equivalent of the Deuteronomy 28 curses. Curse you will be in your going and in your coming, in your field and in your kneading bowl. Curse you will be in the town and curse you will be in the city. In a social sense, 
We are reaping on our head the judgment we well deserve because we were a people who bound ourselves in covenant to a rock that transcends us. But as soon as our faith as a people has left God and focused on the next Moses, the next David, our, our foolishness is proven thus when he proves a failure and falls short. And so where does that leave us as a people? It leaves us to find refuge once again in the same place where David found refuge, that there is no man save one, our Lord Jesus Christ, who provides hope and security, a fortress, and there is only one, and he's jealous for his glory, who by his namesake will lead us and will guide us. Who should we follow? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who should we build our life on? He is our rock and our foundation. As he declared, any other foundation is shifting and failing sand. And so as we go back into the Old Testament scriptures, we find the nourishing answers for the anguish of our own problems today in declaring that there is a glorious and immutable foundation and refuge for the hope of a people. But not just a people, but for the hope of a believer. We look at Jesus Christ as messianic fulfillment of this rock. I've asked myself the question often as we're reading the Psalms, where is this Psalm referred to somewhere else in Scripture? In the New Testament, the Psalms are the most quoted book of the Old Testament. And it's interesting to make note of those occurrences. Psalm 31 is no exception. In verse 5, I'm sure you're very familiar with these words from your New Testament reading as well. Father, I've added that. That's Luke 23, 46. But here both records, account, or both records record, Into your hand I commit my spirit. Those words were echoed on the cross by Jesus Christ. Because Christ committed Himself to the hand of Almighty God as the sacrifice for our sin, because of that, we are utterly secure and committing ourselves to His hand of steadfast love. Steadfast love becomes interchangeable with the rock as we continue to read verse 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Verse 16, make your face shine on your servant, save me in your steadfast love. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord who has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. So Jesus Christ, in the messianic fulfillment of these five verses, provide for us the ultimate answer of who is the rock, who is the refuge. And then we go to the New Testament, and there's so many references on which to pin the fulfillment of this verse. Not just the obvious crucifixion account in Luke 23, 46, but those other accounts of Jesus Christ as a rock as a stone of offense for some, but as the cornerstone of faith for others, as the foundation, as the encouraging example, as the basis of hope for every lost soul, 
and as the foundation for the strength of the believer fulfilling the, the great commission. Because our rock submitted himself to the hand of Almighty God and the judgment our sin deserved, so we are utterly secure in committing ourselves to God's hand, knowing that through Christ and in Christ, those hands are outstretched in steadfast love. God is immovable and unchanging. He is, as the Scriptures declare, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there will never be suffered a stain, a blight, to the nth degree by man's measure on His holiness. Never. In the new Jerusalem, there will not be a vestige of sin in sight or in the experience of all who fellowship there for eternity. There will not be a single tear shed in affliction, anguish, and pain. There will not be a single moment of rejection, regret, or judgment upon the heads of His pure, washed bride that joins Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of that judgment rested on the shoulders, was pushed into the brow as deep as the thorns that crushed our Savior's skull, was drove into the wrists as far as those nails pierced flesh and bone. And the only scars in heaven most likely will be the ones on those our eternal Savior's wrists and feet that bore the weight of our affliction. I cannot wait for that moment of ultimate and glorious confluence in the life course of a believer. That moment in glory where more streams of God's revelatory power will come together in a rushing, overwhelming flood of glorious revelation. But let me tell you, in precursor to that moment, in anticipation of that goal, in the glorious pursuit of that end, there yet remains an unfathomable well from which to draw joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory as we search the Scriptures and realize afresh the coming together of the streams of redemption in our Lord Jesus Christ that were prophesied in Psalm 31 and fulfilled when He hung on that tree. I love the picture and we'll close this with this in Exodus 33. Another moment of divine design in the narrative that Moses wrote for David that we read of in Exodus 33 was this glorious event where a window to the ineffable was cracked just slightly so a mere man might catch a glimpse all that he could grasp without being slaughtered in an instant and blown away by the overwhelming sense of amazement. We have this moment of, in Moses' experience as we, as we read it in Exodus 33, verse 17. Backing up to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See you say to me, Bring up this people 
but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is in anguish. He's communicating with Almighty. But why? Though the lines of communication remained open for him, as he's so desperate for a revelation from God. It's because he had just experienced one of the most dramatic sins of a whole people group that a leader could possibly endure. He had come down from Mount Sinai with tablets written and scribed by the very finger of God of his glorious terms of covenantal hope to reunite them with Himself, to speak to, to deliver to them His standards of righteousness and holiness. And they were shattered. Why? Because when He came down to fellowship with His people and to deliver to what He thought would be their patient ears, the glorious truth of their Almighty who had revealed Himself in storm and cloud and thunder and earthquake, He came and they were worshiping a golden calf. They had melted down metal that he had laced through the earth as a picture of himself and his glory. He had graced the earth with bounty and allowed it to remain even after the fall. And men were able to mine pictures of his prosperity. And gold was something that they always treasured and still do today, mankind that is. But what had man chosen to do in his prosperity? And his wanton rebellion against God, his idolatrous declaration of independence from him and his hope, he had melted together, that is, mankind, as represented by the people at that time, all the ornaments and jewelry, and made a golden calf and fell down before it and worshipped it. Talk about a hopeless moment. And now Moses says, if the revelation and the direction the sovereign intervention, the miraculous help that you have provided is not sufficient enough to this point to lead and guide these people. If wandering in the wilderness guided sovereignly by a cloud and by fire was not enough to hold their attention, if after numerous accounts of their complaining, your overflowing provision in food and manna and water springing out of the rock was not enough, what will save us? Is there any hope? What can I do? Show me your glory. Give me a promise. Let me have hope. What can I base my assurance that your covenant will not ultimately be undone by so wicked and reprobate and prone to sin as these people? And indeed, if he was honest, his own heart. And then God reveals himself. Verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Verse 21, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then God graciously re-delivers the Ten Commandments after this moment of glorious revelation. I trust that at this time, in Moses' doubting career of being called as a sinner to lead sinners, he never struggled with doubt to the degree that he did before this revelation again. Because this was a memorial moment. This was part of the narrative of God's streams of revelation that revealed to greater degree the assurance of God's will and plan in and to and through His people. Great hymn has been penned that summarizes these first five verses so beautifully. I mentioned our own experience as a nation if I asked you, what does the date 1776 mean to you? I'm sure most everyone in this room would recognize that as a pivotal memorial stone in our own founding as the date when the Declaration of Independence was published. But there's another and vastly more, I dare say so, document that was published that same year. Let me say it again. The year the Declaration of Independence was published, 1776, another document, vastly more important, was published by the hymn's author that same year. That document was a song. A song that summarizes these truths of rock, refuge. A psalm that with New Testament glory overflows and a summary of praise to the Lord in, one, in a way that some of those great hymns were able to do these streams of God's revelation and to the confluence of Christ. This document was a hymn called Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, 
When I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. These words, though far surpassing the importance of the Declaration of Independence, are they themselves surpassed when we read again in closing Psalm 31, 1 through 5. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we confess this morning with the assurance that the Holy Spirit alone can grant through faith alone in Jesus Christ, whose death alone can atone for sin, And the Spirit of Almighty God alone can apply to the heart of the believer. We confess that you are our rock and our refuge. And in you we find our hope, our deliverance, our strength, our courage, our safety, our fortress, our refuge, our righteousness. And you will certainly pull us from the net. You will certainly hide us from evil. You have redeemed us. You are faithful, God, because Christ, our Savior, Lord, and sacrifice, submitted Himself to the hands of Almighty God's judgment for sin. So we submit to Your hands of steadfast love. May our affections be joined with the truth as we contemplate these words. And may our testimony increase in boldness, emphasis, clarity, and power that we would say with the hymn writer, say with Moses, and say with David, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness deliver me. In Jesus' name, amen.